You are listening to A Scary State, and this week we're covering Montana. So, Joe. Yes, Lauren. Let's get scary. All right. Hello, everyone. How's everybody doing? So, (laughs) Joe, um, today before we started to record, he was like, oh, let's have some wine. And I said, okay, Joe, what kind of wine are we drinking? I believe we're drinking some uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. (laughs) I don't know. I'm just a simple boy from Worcester, Massachusetts. I like my light beer and occasional IPA. Uh, I'm not a big wine drinker. Sounds like your dating profile. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. uh, I don't know too much about wine, but if anybody has uh, any recommendations, I'm more of a red wine kind of guy. The white wine is a little too uh, sweet on my tummy. So our Sauvignon. (laughs) Sauvignon. It's really good. Um, Honestly, though, how do you really pronounce it? Cabernet Sauvignon. Sauvignon. Okay. Um, So also, since we recorded last, I got a tattoo recently, so I wanted to talk about it. So my grandpa passed away about a year ago, and um, since he passed, I'm not kidding when I would tell you, like, I would see three to seven hawks a day. So I ended up getting a hawk tattoo, which looks really, really cool. Yeah, it looks really good. So yeah, we love tattoos. So I just wanted to share it. And because it has a really fun story, because yeah, after that, I was was seeing hawks all the time. So it's just kind of fun. I would be interested in hearing some of uh, Montana's state facts. All right. So Montana, nicknamed the Treasure State, joined the Union on November 8th, 1889 and became the 41st state. Montana got its name from the Spanish word Montana, meaning mountain or mountainous region, though its max elevation is only 3,400 feet, which is the lowest among the Rocky Mountain states. So some weird laws. If you're a married woman, it is illegal to go fishing alone on a Sunday. You you cannot have more than one alarm clock ringing at the same time, as that is illegal. Though we have that in the morning when we both wake up. Yeah, we'd be going to jail, I guess. So my high school senior prank was we had a week long of pranks, but one of ours was, it was like our first day, so it was our most like mild prank. All of us set our alarm for the exact same time on our phone and put our phone in our lockers, so they all went off at the same time. It was obnoxious, but it was very fun. Um, And it is a misdemeanor to show a film that depicts acts of felonious crimes. I love the word felonious. Yeah. (laughs) From Shrek. Felonious. Oh. (laughs) Lord Farquaad's guy. Oh, I didn't even put that together. Yeah. Um, Montana has a really high number of UFO sightings, which we will talk about soon. And on one night in 1967, two women were mauled to death by two different grizzly bears in Glacial National Park. Since the park had opened in 1910, there had been no reports of a bear attack. Then two happened on the exact same night. No, thank you. That's honestly my biggest fear. Um, My two biggest fears, number one, is getting stuck on something that continuously spins. I cannot (laughs) do any type of spinning rides at the carnivals. It's really unfortunate. I I just don't like it. I get extremely bad um, vertigo, and that just, I don't do that. But my second biggest fear is getting eaten alive by an animal. That would be one of the worst ways to go, in my opinion. Um, Yeah, that would be ideal. I don't like that fact. So. Let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> then in 2015, a black bear made its way into Boozman High School and started walking the halls. Thankfully, it got in before school had started for the day, so no one had a run-in with this bear. It ended up escaping the school unharmed and uncaptured. And something really horrible and gross happened in September of 2013. So if you're a little squeamish, skip ahead maybe 30 seconds. So a woman from Livingston found part of a human face in a car wash. 
So how this happened, tragically, an 81-year-old man was hit and killed by a semi-truck as he was walking down I-90. The driver fled the scene, so the man's body remained and continued to be hit by passing cars. Well, one of those drivers who hit the remains went and washed the evidence off of his car at a car wash in Livingston. Later that day, Kimberly Creech decided her car needed to be washed, which is when she found the man's face. So just like the skin of his face? Like his face. Like Like a face mask? (laughs) <laughs> like, uh, think Silence of the Lambs. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Good Silence ace. of the Lambs, right? Yeah, it's yeah, Silence of the Lambs. And then, of course, Dwight from The Office. Mm-hmm. Um, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, lived in a tiny house, which he built in Montana. This is where he conducted his bombing campaign. And have you ever heard of the conspiracy theory that a place called Missoula doesn't exist? No, but I should have, because uh, my topic today has something to do with Missoula. Well, this came from a man named Sky with two eyes, <laughs> Wolford, who claims that Missoula didn't exist because of the, there's a truck backing up outside. Of course there is. How selfish of them. Um, so he claims that Missoula didn't exist because of the Bielefeld conspiracy. He would ask, have you known anyone from Missoula? Have you ever been to Missoula? Do you know anyone who has ever been to Missoula? Well, people from Montana would say yes to all of these questions. So a few people still believe in this theory, but it was a common that's interesting, but I know a man from Missoula, or I know of a man. I <laughs> hope you don't Missoula. know the man. <laughs> All right. What are you telling us about Missoula then? Yeah. So, my topic today, well, one of my topics is uh, the story of Wayne Nance, also known as the Missoula Mauler. He was an American serial killer in the state of Montana whose crimes spanned from 1974 to 1986, possibly even earlier. Nance was suspected of killing up to six victims after brutally raping them. Needless to say, he wasn't a very good man, and I do want to say a little bit of a trigger warning. We don't go too in-depth, but there is, you know, mentions of rape and murder in this story. But yeah, so Nance was born in Missoula, Montana, in 1955. So a real place. (laughs) So a real place, according to this, and grew up in a mobile home located on the outskirts of Missoula. His mother worked as a waitress while his father worked as a trucker. In his teen years, he seemed to excel at school and was well-liked, although many of those who knew him thought he was a bit different. So I guess even then, you know, people that knew him could tell he was a bit off. Yeah, which Um, you can tell. Yeah. Uh, But Nance committed his first murder in April of 1974 at the age of 18. His victim was Donna Pounds, a part-time Christian bur- <laughs> a part-time Christian bookstore clerk who lived several houses down with her family from Nance. So on April 11th, 1974, when Donna was home alone, Wayne Nance snuck into the home and found Donna Pounds' husband, Harry Pounds' gun and surprised Donna in her bedroom. Did you find out how he was able to break in? Or, like, did he break in? Did he uh, find, so, like, an unlocked window? So, it never specified how he broke in, but it is it is kind of interesting because, apparently, the Pounds family, they are very big Christians, and they would go to church a lot. And I'm not sure. It never really specifies how much Nance, uh, like his religion and all that, but I know that they would have on Sundays, the Pounds family would have functions at their home after church, and Nance was a regular visitor. So that is how he knew where the husband, Harry Pounds' gun was. Yeah, and then knew the layout of the house. Ew. Oh, that's creepy. 
Um, after tying her up and raping her, Nance dragged her down to the basement and shot her five times in the back of the head. Mm. So he kind of has a little bit of th- a theme with that, but we'll get into that. Okay. In a bit. Uh, after the body was discovered, the police began a search, which led to them talking to neighbors of the Pounds family. One neighbor, unnamed, told police that she had seen a man who resembled Nance outside of the Pounds home that same afternoon. Nance was questioned by police, but they could not find any physical evidence linking him to the crime. It was only years later that police ended up searching Nance's home and discovered evidence in the form of bloody underwear of the victim linking him to the crime. And this was years later. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to talk about, like, why they decided to start looking at him years later? Yeah, so... Nance's killing spree really took off during the 1980s. Skeletons and decomposed bodies began to pile up in the wake of Nance's heinous crimes. The remains of 15-year-old Devonna Nelson, dubbed Betty Beavertail, because her remains were found at Beavertail Hills State Park in January of 1980, and due to the state of her body, she wasn't identified until 1985. Jeez. Yeah. Unfortunately, Betty Beavertail wasn't the only victim of Nance's who couldn't be identified upon their body being discovered. Which brings us to Debbie Deer Creek. Let me guess, she was found near Deer Creek. It doesn't say, but I'm assuming. They're not really, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But her real name was Marcy Bachman. Barkman was a 16-year-old runaway from Vancouver, Washington, who Nance had taken in after a trucker left Marcy stranded in the area. Her body was discovered in an advanced state of decomposition in December 1984 by a hiker. Her body was found buried in a shallow grave. She was killed by three gunshots to the head. So, kind of have a trend where yeah. he rapes and then shoots in the head. Ugh. Yeah. Bachman's body, or Bachman herself, wasn't identified until over 20 years later in 2006 through DNA profiling. And it's really sad because Marcy's brother, Derek Bachman, was searching for her the whole entire time with a private investigator. He never knew what happened to his sister. I guess she was a runaway. She, you know... A trucker picked her up. She made her way down to Missoula, oh, that's Montana. So sad. Um, became friends with Nance. He took her in, and then he ended up murdering her. All the while, her brother was out searching that's for so her. That's so sad. At least he got. You know, it's it's not a good situation, but at least he. You know, it took twenty years, but he got Some his closure. closure. Yeah. Yeah. Like the previous two Jane Does I just mentioned, the body Christy Creek Lake was discovered on September 9th, 1985. Christy Creek Lake turned out to be the skeleton of 23-year-old Janet L. Lucas. Janet was found with two 32 caliber bullets in her skull. Of course. So, so Nance I, has a, somewhat of a calling card. So the cops did put that together, right? They're like, or were they too far apart? Or will you get to that? I will get to that, okay. yes. I can't imagine doing that to someone. I also can't imagine having that happen to me. Well, I'm glad um, you can't imagine doing that to someone. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I, I hope that anybody out there that's listening who's gone some, through some sort of sexual trauma, I truly, truly hope you're doing okay. Um, and I hope the family of all these victims that uh, I'm mentioning f- have found peace. Um, but back to the unfortunate situation of Janet L. Lucas. Uh, she was originally from Spokane, Washington. And there's no information on how or why she was in Missoula, Montana, but she wasn't officially identified until May of 2021 through 
DNA testing. Oh my gosh! So this like happened in nineteen a year ago, nineteen eighty five, and with her skeleton, they figured that she died sometime between nineteen eighty three and nineteen eighty five. So they're not even sure. Dang. And like I said, she wasn't officially identified mm-hmm. until May of two thousand twenty one, which is Jeez. crazy. Michael and Teresa Shook were two more victims of Wayne Nance. Their bodies were found in their home on December 12th, 1985 in Ravali County, Montana. They were tied up in their home and shot to death. They were the parents of four children who were apparently were in the home at the time of the murder. Oh. I couldn't find any more, more information about them, but Nance actually tried destroying the evidence by burning down the house, but the children ended up surviving. Um, And the evidence of his crime remained intact. Mm -hmm. But now we're going to get to Nance's downfall. And what happens with this is kind of why the police start going back to look Mm -hmm. at his background, his past. Because up until this point, they questioned him one time about the Pounds murder. But after that, you know, he was never mentioned again. He was never seen at a crime. They never had any physical evidence to yeah, exactly. to suspect that it would be him. So let me take a sip of wine real quick. Oh, you're a Cabernet Sauvignon. Exactly. <laughs> so Wayne Nance had no plans of stopping his brutal murders. And on September 3rd, 1986, he attempted to murder the couple of Doug and Chris Wells. At the time, Nance worked at a moving company and was working for the Wells that day. He was there working alone and asked the husband, Doug, for a flashlight. They went inside the home to grab one when Nance struck Doug in the head, knocking him out. Nance proceeded to tie both Doug and his wife, Chris, up. Nance brought Doug down to the basement and stabbed him in the chest with an 8-inch blade. He then went back upstairs and forced Chris into the master bedroom, tied her up, and planned on raping her. Now, I spoke about how Nance usually killed his victims with gunshots, and Mm -hmm. I don't know if he was carrying a gun at the time or what, but he's obviously much more efficient killing people by shooting rather than stabbing, because Doug Wells survived the stab wound in his chest. Oh, jeez. Yeah, pretty crazy. An eight-inch blade through the chest, and he was able to survive. Um Not only was he able to survive, but Doug was able to untie himself and make his way upstairs, get his rifle while his wife was at the mercy of Nance. Uh, Nance was in the process of um, raping Chris, unfortunately. But heroically, Doug loaded one, one bullet into his rifle and made his way to the bedroom, where an altercation ensued. It ended with Doug saving his wife and shooting Nance. Oh, thank God. Yeah. The police and paramedics were called, and all three people, the two victims and the serial killer together, were all rushed to the hospital. The Wells both survived while Nance died from the gunshot wound the next day. The Missoula Mahler's reign of terror was finally over, and it's pretty poetic that Wayne Nance ended up dying from a gunshot. That is poetic. Yeah. But yeah, no, that is kind of He, he took wild. so many lives that way, and then it ended. Not only, you know, was he shot, but he was shot by one of his intended victims. Yeah. Uh, you know what they say, karma is the B word. <laughs> but uh, author- authorities later investigated Nance's background, and that's when all of his other crimes came to light. They did a search of his home, and he kept trinkets of everything and yeah so that's how everything came to light and yeah that's the story of wayne nance the missoula mauler there are so many who keep like trinkets and then so many who will write things down and like 
hit the microphone, in journals and stuff. And it's like, that's a lot of times how they're caught. Mm -hmm. Dang. That is scary. Yep. Well, good job. Thank you. Joe was really excited before we recorded. He's like, all right, let's do this. I got this. Yeah, it's my first episode. I had to get myself psyched up. Also, what happened last night? What did happen last night? I don't when know. your computer reset? Oh, my goodness. So I was like three quarters of the way with my Wayne Nance, like typing it out and having all my information ready for this. And I noticed my laptop was dying. So, you know, I should listen to my wife more. Yes. Uh, she always tells me to save things while I'm typing, and I just don't listen because <laughs> I am stubborn. And so I plugged my laptop in, and then it began to restart on its own. And I was so devastated. I was so upset. I was freaking out. It took about, my laptop's very old, or the one I'm using at least for this. It took like 20 minutes to uh, do the update and restart and everything. Luckily, I was able to recover everything that I had typed because that would have really sucked, but I made it a point to start saving. And then after every five it. minutes, I was like, all right, you saved yet? Uh, yep. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> all right. So in the intro, I mentioned how Montana has a lot of UFO sightings and encounters, and boy, do they. So the first one I'm going to talk about occurred in August of 1950 in Great Falls, Montana. So Great Falls is actually the third most populated city in Montana with a population of a little over 60... 60,000. They also average over 11. What is happening? They oh, also average better than you. <laughs> Shut up. They also average over 1 million overnight visitors annually, which brings in a large revenue and tourism for Great Falls. So on August 15, 1950, at 11:25 a.m., the general manager of the Great Falls minor league baseball team, the Electrics, Mike Mariana, was checking out the empty Legion Stadium baseball field before a scheduled game. He was with his 19-year-old secretary, Virginia Reinig. Interesting. So fun fact about the Electrics, they are considered to be a farm team for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Do you know what that is? A farm team? Yeah. Yeah. So it means, for all of you people who are like me who don't know sports, and tell me if this is right. <laughs> okay. Um, it means that the Electrics provide experience and training for young players who have a dream to make it big one day. Yeah, essentially. So they have an agreement with the Dodgers that any skilled and successful players can move up to a higher level. So that doesn't relate to the story at all, but I thought it was really cool. So Nick Mariana... Look at you getting into sports. I know, you're welcome. It's about time. <laughs> so Nick Mariana and Virginia Reinig were walking around the stadium just making sure that it was ready for the game when a bright flash caught their attention. According to Mariana, he saw two bright silvery objects rotating while flying over Great Falls at a speed he estimated to be 200 to 400 miles per hour. He believed that they were roughly 50 feet wide and 150 feet apart. So upon seeing this, he ran to his car where he had a 16-millimeter movie camera. Running back to the location where he had seen the UFOs, he began filming and was able to film a 16-second video of the UFOs. UFO doesn't necessarily mean aliens. It literally means an unidentified flying object, which these things clearly were. So his camera wasn't able to record sound, but it was able to record film in color, so the video got the UFO and its movements in full color. Both Mariana and Reinig saw the object in the sky. Somehow, this video got around, and the next day, the Great Falls Tribune, the city's daily newspaper, already had a story running which described Mariana's sightings and described the film that Mariana had recorded. The story was soon picked up by another media outlet, which was picked up by another until the story was circulating all over the nation. So for weeks after his sighting, Mariana was in a inundated with people wanting to see the film. He would also show the film to local community groups. And so remember how I said that the Great Falls Tribune had been the first to run this story? 
Well, for some reason, a reporter from the Tribune decided that he had to call the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, which is about 1,676 miles, or 2,697 kilometers, away from Great Falls, and tell them about what Mariana had seen and about the film that he had recorded. This prompted U.S. Air Force Captain John P. Brynildsen to reach out to Mariana and set up an interview. So Captain Brynildsen, who we'll call Captain B, Mariana and Reinig all met up at the Malmstrom Air Force Base, which is located right outside of Great Falls, adjacent to it in the next town over. So Mariana and Reinig recounted their sightings to the Air Force captain and stated that right after seeing this UFO, they had seen two jet fighters pass over the stadium. Captain B believed that what Mariana and Reinig had seen and what had been captured on film had simply been those fighter jets flying overhead. But either way, Captain B asked Mariana if he would mind sending him the film he had captured, and Mariana agreed. So Captain B is quoted saying to a reporter from Great Falls that he had, quote, picked up about eight feet of film from Mariana, end quote, and sent it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for analysis. But in the message that he wrote to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base that accompanied the film, Captain B said that he was sending, quote, approximately 15 feet of moving picture film. So this is a discrepancy of seven feet, almost double what he had originally said. So quick note, UFO historian Jerome Clark said that this discrepancy to this day has never been cleared up. So that seems sort of fishy to me. Yeah. So an analysis was done on the film that was sent to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and it was determined that the UFO in the film was simply the reflections of the two F-94 jet fighters that had been flying over the Great Falls area at the exact time that Mariana had his sighting. But after the film had been looked at and a determination was made, Lieutenant Colonel Ray W. Taylor sent the film back to Mariana with a cover letter that said, quote, our photo analysts were unable to find anything identifiable of an unusual nature, end quote. But not long after, in 1951, Air Force officer Edward J. Ruppelt said, In 1950, there was no interest by the Air Force in the UFO. So after quick viewing, Project Grudge had written them off as the reflections from two F-94 jet fighters that were in the area. So let me talk about Project Grudge a little bit. Okay. So it was a U.S. Air Force project that investigated UFOs. It was right before Project Blue Book, which I will talk about in a moment. So Project Grudge formally ended in December 1949, but still operated in a minimal capacity until late 1951. The point of this project was to alleviate public anxiety over UFOs and show the public that UFOs were nothing unusual or extraordinary, which sounds good. So it tried to show that these UFOs that people were reporting could be anything from balloons to aircrafts to planets to meteors to optical illusions or any other explainable thing. But it was quickly shut down because officials believed that by showing the public that the Air Force had an interest in UFOs, that it encouraged the public to believe in them and would contribute to a, quote, war hysteria atmosphere. (laughs) So in August of 1949, the final conclusion report of the project included, A, there is no evidence that objects reported upon are the result of an advanced scientific foreign development, and therefore they constitute no direct threat to the national security. In view of this, it is recommended that the investigation and study of reports of unidentified flying objects be reduced in scope. And B, all evidence and analysis indicate that reports of unidentified flying objects are a result of 1. Misinterpretation of various conventional objects. 2. A mild form of mass hysteria and war nerves. Three, individuals who fabricate such reports to perpetuate a hoax or to seek publicity, or four, psychopathological persons. So they pretty much are saying that UFOs, like, don't exist and that there's reasons why we see these unidentified flying things in the air. Yeah, I mean, you gotta try to explain the unexplainable. I mean, can you imagine how crazy we'd go if there was really, if we saw aliens in the sky? Do you think there are aliens? Uh, 
I'm more of a seeing is believing type of guy. I, I want to say yes. I think it would be great if there was a life, you know, outside of this. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I believe there are. Because I think it's kind of selfish for us to think that in the entire universe that we have never found the end of, that we're the only living creatures in it. There's no way we are the only creatures in the entire universe. No way. So, an interesting fact about the man, Air Force officer um, Edward J. Ruppelt. In 1951, he had become the supervisor for the Air Force's Project Blue Book investigation, which looked into the UFO mystery. So, now we'll take a look into the Project Blue Book. So, I'm not talking about the TV show by the same name. (laughs) I'm talking about the codename that the Air Force used for the systematic study of UFOs. So, I swear Project Blue Book as itself could be its whole own episode. There's just so much information about it, so I tried to condense it into this one. So, the project went on from March 1952 to December 17th, 1969, when the project was terminated. The project was headquartered where? Well, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. and was initi- <laughs> And was initially directed by who? Our friend from earlier, Edward J. Ruppelt. Who? So the project was of a similar nature to Project Grudge, which I briefly talked about. The two goals of Project Blue Book were to determine if UFOs posed a threat to national security and to scientifically analyze UFO-related data. These would be really cool jobs. I know. That would be awesome. So during the time that the project ran, thousands of UFO reports were collected, analyzed, then filed. When this project ended in 1969, they had collected 12,618 UFO reports and concluded that most of them were misidentifications of natural phenomena like clouds or stars or just conventional aircraft. But 701 of those reports were classified as, quote, unexplained even after intense analysis. The Air Force came back with this final summary of their investigations under Project Blue Book. One, no UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force was ever an indication of threat to our national security. Two, there was no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified unidentified, represented technological developments or principles beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge. Three, there was no evidence indicating that sightings categorized as unidentified were extraterrestrial vehicles. So there's a little bit um, of additional information about Project Blue Book a little bit later. Uh, So it seemed to all be said and done until Mariana came forward and claimed that the first 35 frames of his film, the frames that most clearly showed the UFO as rotating discs, so drastically different from reflections of what fighter jets would be, was missing. Those in Great Falls who had seen the first original version of this film also supported these claims. They all claimed that the missing frames had shown the UFO as spinning metallic discs with a notch or band along their outer edges. But of course, Air Force personnel denied any accusations, but did insist that they had only removed one single frame of the film that had been damaged during the analysis. So it was an intense time in the early 50s surrounding this incident. A cosmopolitan writer and UFO skeptic named Bob Considine wrote an article in January 1951. Considine. Can you stop? (laughs) Entitled, we're never going to know. Entitled, The Disgraceful Flying Saucer Hoax. In his article, he talked about and tried to debunk what had become the most famous UFO sighting to date, including both Mariana's sightings and the film. Later that year, Mariana filed a lawsuit for slander against Considine? We're going to say Considine. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Stating that the article implied that Mariana was, quote, a liar, prankster, half-wit, crank, publicity hound, and fanatic. The lawsuit didn't go far and was dropped in September 1955. Jeez, tell us how you really feel, buddy. I know. But over the next few years, this whole UFO incident wasn't dropped. So a few later and additional studies and further analysis occurred within the following years. 
So like I said, the early 50s was kind of wild in regards to this incident. In 1952, our friend Captain Ruppelt talked to Mariana again and was able to convince him to again let the Air Force look at the film and perform an e- and perform an even more detailed and elaborate analysis on it. So I would like to say that kind of what we said earlier, this would be the absolute coolest job, looking at videos and doing analysis on UFOs. Yeah, it would be pretty like, awesome. Like, sign me up. Yeah, just trying to determine what it is. And- yeah, right, and getting to look at all these different claims that people have, that would be so cool. But I feel like I don't know enough about airplanes or aircraft or anything like that. Yeah, same here. But my buddy Chris, Chris, if you're listening, let us know, man. <laughs> let us know if this is your job. Yeah, man. All right. So Mariana agreed again to let the Air Force take another look at his film, but with one rule. There w- they were to sign an agreement stating that they would not remove any frames of the film, not even one small one. They signed the agreement and analysis took place. So the film analysis at the Air Force Base concluded that the objects that Mariana had captured in his film, quote, were not birds, balloons, or meteors. Remember how they had originally said that the objects were just reflections of the F-94 jets? Well, that was also ruled out this time around. So according to the memoirs that Ruppelt later wrote, he said, quote, The two jets weren't anywhere close to where the two UFOs had been. We studied each individual light, and both appeared too steady to be reflections. We drew a blank on the Montana movie. It was an unknown. End quote. And then the following year, in January 1953, a panel of prominent scientists were put together by the Air Force and CIA to examine the best cases that had been collected during Project Blue Book, which I said earlier. Mariana's UFO film was one of the best cases that was brought before the panel, known as the Robertson Panel. The scientists on this panel judged that the UFOs in the film were, quote, reflections of aircraft known to have been in the area. So we're being told that they are aircrafts, we're being told that they aren't aircrafts, like, it's going back and forth. It's a conspiracy. Maybe. Then, in 1954, Green Rouse Productions decided that they wanted to film a documentary movie about the whole UFO thing. This might have been the only UFO thing or something really intense if it is literally getting all of this attention, both by media outlets and the government. So, Green Rouse Productions asked Mariana for the rights to his film to use in their documentary, and he agreed. The production company, I guess, really wanted to analyze the films and make sure it was all good before they used it, so they hired a scientist and engineer for the Douglas Air Force Company named Robert M. L. Baker Jr. In 1956, Baker completed his analysis and concluded that the explanation that these figures seen in the film were reflections of fighter jets was, quote, quite strange. So I take it to mean that Baker Jr. did not believe that explanation. Then, in 1968, there was a congressional hearing on UFOs. Baker was called to testify on his analysis of the Mariana film. He said, quote, Preliminary analysis excluded most natural phenomena. More detailed study indicated that the only remaining natural phenomenon candidate for the Utah film was Birds in Flight, and that's a different film. And for the Montana film, it was airplane fuselage reflections of the sun. After about 18 months of rather detailed, albeit not continuous, study using various film measurement. Oh my god, measuring equipments at Douglas and at UCLA, as well as analysis of a photogrammetric experiment, it appeared that neither of these hypothesized natural phenomena explanations had merit. Then just a year later, Baker presented a paper at the AAAS, American Association for the Advancement of Science UFO Panel. This panel was organized by Thornton Page and Carl Sagan. After discussing many different UFO films and photographs, Baker spoke about the Mariana film and concluded that the UFOs in Mariana's film were unidentifiable. He emphasized that it was important to improve the quality of photographic data before we can speculate about the nature of unidentified flying objects. But that is not all. In 1966, the U.S. government not only established, but also founded a study for the UFO phenomena. And no surprise, but Mariana's UFO film was going to be 
reinvestigated yet again. Two investigators were assigned to the case. Dr. Roy Craig, who was a psychiatrist who was also skeptical skeptical of UFOs, and Dr. David Saunders, a psychologist who had been interested in the Mariana UFO incident for some time. During their investigation, a new issue arose. They were unable to determine if the filming had occurred on August 5th or August 15th of 1950. The issue had never come about in all the 16 years prior, so I'm not sure why it's now all of a sudden an issue. Mariana was, of course, interviewed by the two men, and following that interview, the two research came up with their conclusions. Dr. Craig remained skeptical and was skeptical of Mariana's claim that 35 frames had been removed. He said, quote, The comment I considered most significant was Mr. Mariana's ex-secretary made to me during a phone interview when I pressed for information or beliefs regarding clips of the film by the Air Force. The very hesitant comment was, What you have to remember is that all of this is that Mariana is a promoter. That comment was adequate to close our conversation, end quote. So he clearly didn't believe Mariana. Dr. Sanders, on the other hand, believed that it was an important piece of information and was suspicious about the discrepancy of those missing frames. He was also very focused on the reports that had come out at the beginning of the whole thing that said that the three seconds of the film, ones that were removed, showed the objects as spinning discs. He came to the conclusion that Mariana's film was, quote, the one sighting of all time that did more than any other single case to convince me that there is something to the UFO problem. So he clearly believes that there is something there in Mariana's films. Well, yet another man, an astronomer named Dr. William Hartman, said that none of the possibilities that had, put, had been put forward can be entirely ruled out, but that essentially there are several arguments that go against airplane reflections. So today, copies of Mariana's films are currently being held at the U.S. National Archive. It can still be seen today in documentaries, TV shows, and can be found online, but to this day it is still being debated. And since that, and since that sighting in 1950, over 100 other UFO sightings have been reported in Great Falls, which has made it one of the most active locations for UFO sightings in all of North America. Huh. And a fun fact, that minor league team named the Electrics that I mentioned earlier changed their name in 2008 to the Great Fall Voyagers in honor of the Mariana UFO incident. Cool. Do you know of them? I don't. I'm going to look them up after this, though. Maybe they have a cool hat. <laughs> Maybe. Um, so I watched what I think was the correct video. The version I saw was very, very short, like only 15 seconds long. So it showed two little circles of light that were moving at the same speed in the same direction. So they looked to be part of like the same thing, like the same craft potentially. I definitely don't think they would be reflections of anything with how consistently they move together. And at the same distance and speed, they look to be like the same thing. I did not, however, see the spinning disc part that was apparently at the beginning of the film. That part wasn't included. So that's the Mariana UFO incident. But I have one more that happened. So this next one is just a really quick UFO encounter known as the Boulder Mountain Contact or as the Wartena case or Wartena incident that I also want to talk about. So this is the case of an apparent landing and contact that occurred at the base of Boulder Mountain. So these mountains run between Helena and Butte, obviously in Montana. So this encounter had been kept a secret for years. The man who had the experience didn't tell a soul until 1988 when he was on his deathbed and only then did he confide in his two best friends. So another whole decade passed before Warren Aston, a UFO researcher, released the information to the public in the March-April 1988 edition of UFO Magazine, which in my opinion gives it a little bit more credibility that the main witness didn't tell anyone for so long. So our story starts with a 37-year-old man named Udo Wartina. Wartina was working in Townsend as a part-time gold miner for the Northwest Mining Company in May of 1940. On this particular day, around 10 a.m., Hortina was doing his job at a site near the base of Boulder Mountain near Canyon Ferry Lake. A few weeks earlier, he had noticed indications of gold ore in this area. 
So this had been a site that Wartina had been returning to on and off for a while. He had even started to move some boulders around in order to divert the water in order to make his mining efforts a bit easier. So he was doing his thing and working when he started to become aware of a strange humming sound. His first thought was that it was just an airplane flying overhead, but it persisted. Wartina began to look around, but wasn't able to see anything that could be making such a noise. He decided that in order to find out where the sound was coming from, he would move to a higher elevation, so he made his way to a risen plateau. But as he approached, in front of him, above his makeshift dam, was a large metallic object hovering in the air. He described it by saying, quote, It was like two soup plates, one inverted over the other. They were stainless steel in color, though not as bright and shiny. As Wartina is looking at this aircraft, ladder-like stairs began to emerge from underneath the ship, and a man-like figure walked there and towards where Wartina was standing. He described that the figure was wearing light gray overalls, slippers or moccasins on his feet, and he had a circular cap on his head, which was also light gray and was covering extremely white hair. The two approached each other and shook hands. The visitor is the one who initiated that handshake. The visitor told Wartina that they were not aware that he had been in the area and told him that it was not their custom to interrupt or allow themselves to be seen. The visitors then asked if it would be okay if they took some water, which he agreed to. The article I read from ufoinsight.com mentioned how it is interesting that close-range UFO sightings usually seem to occur near large bodies of water. The article also mentioned that another sighting that occurred in 1897 also featured occupants of a ship who appeared to be human and also asked for water. So later on, later on, later on, Martina said that he believed that the visitors used water to power their crafts by converting the hydrogen into like energy or something. So when speaking with the visitors, Wartina described the visitor's English to be like his own, but the visitor had to speak slowly, as if he were still learning the language. After the visitor got the water he asked for by using a hose that was attached to a ship, he turned to Wartina and asked if he would like to board the ship. With absolutely no hesitation, he agreed and followed the, dis- the visitor onto the disc. Would you have gotten on? Definitely not. You don't think so? No, definitely not. <laughs> I've watched way too many horror movies. Yeah, that's true. So Martina said that about the humming, as he got closer to the ship, the humming seemed to go through him. His first observations upon entering the ship were that they, quote, entered into a room about 12 by 16 feet with a close-fitting sliding door on the farther end, indirect lighting near the ceiling, and nice upholstered benches around the sides. This matches the description that I gave from the guys from my main story, the Allagash abduction story. They talked about the exact same interior of a spaceship, which is kind of cool. Another man was waiting in the ship and looked the same as the man who had originally greeted Martina. So he then asked the two creatures how old they were. One said he was 600 years old and the other was 900 years old, at least determined by how people on Earth measure time. Over the course of his time in the craft, Martina and the beings spoke and he was able to ask the beings many questions. He found out that the craft they were on was able to overcome the gravitational pull of Earth and other planets and essentially created its own gravitational pull. He said that this allowed the craft to ride over these poles and waves like you do when you sail on ice. They also created an electromagnetic force and energies. He did admit that he was ignorant to these types of phrases and didn't fully understand what any of it meant, but that he did know and was made aware of how important these energy sources are to are to humanity and how important it is that humanity understands them is able to develop similar sources. His description of how the craft moves also mirrored other UFO encounter reports. So Wartina also gathered that these creatures never referred to themselves as humans or aliens, but said that they are similar to humans. They also said that they mingle with your people, gather information, leave instructions, and give help when needed. They lived among humans on many occasions. Hmm. 
Yeah. He also wanted to know what they thought about in regards to religion, and the creatures pretty much said that they liked to talk to him about these things but weren't able to. They could not interfere in any way. Which leads to an interesting theory called the ancient astronaut theory that mainly states that many of the world's religions are a consequence and result of extraterrestrial intervention that occurred in the distant past. So this poses the question of if that intervention was unintentional and if there was a different extraterrestrial race that intervened many, many, many years ago. So before he left the ship, Ortena said that they gave him a sort of scan. The machine was similar to what is used for an x-ray. It was to scan his body for any impurities before he returned to Earth. The creatures also asked him one final question, if he would like to go with them. Like, to leave Earth and travel space and time and all of that with the extraterrestrials. Apparently, according to the website that I was on, this is also a very common question that people report being asked when they are abducted. So when asked this question, Ortana said that he thought it would be interesting, but felt that it would inconvenience too many people. Years later, he wondered why he said that. So also, apparently, there's a very common response that people give when they are asked this question, which is wild to think about. So the people who are asked this question all answer with the same response that he gave, saying that they don't want to be an inconvenience. And with hmm. him saying that he doesn't know why he answered that way, it's just very odd. Like, he yeah. didn't want to go, obviously, but he didn't know why he said, like, oh, I can't go because it would be an inconvenience. Hmm. He did recall years later that there was an incident involving a local man. Two years earlier, that man vanished without a trace. This local man lived near and walked in the same areas that Martina did. That made him wonder if, in fact, the local man also had encountered these visitors but took up their offer to explore the universe with the visitors instead of to remain on Earth. So as Martina was leaving the ship, the visitors gave him one last piece of advice, if you will. They told him that he should tell no one of this encounter because no one would believe him. However, in years to come, he would be able to speak publicly about his experience without much fear. He estimated that he had been on the ship for about two hours when he finally got off and said that his limbs felt weakened after, so much so that he felt he couldn't move for some time. When he was finally able to move and he regained his strength, he looked around to see if he could find any sign that this whole thing had happened. Martina said that all he was able to find was one small piece of grass that appeared to have been pressed down. <laughs> and it is clear that he followed the creature's advice in not telling anyone about the encounter. He kept it quiet for almost half a century. So these are just two of the hundreds of UFO encounters and sightings that have occurred in Montana. Have you ever seen a UFO? No, I, I have not. Would you like to? Yeah, I think it would be pretty cool. I think that would be very cool, too. But yeah, so those are just two of the, like, millions of UFO, okay, not millions, but, like, a lot of UFO encounters that occur in Montana. That's pretty crazy. I didn't know that Montana was such a UFO hotspot. Yeah, I didn't either. But that was one of, like, the main things that I kept reading on articles about Montana was just, like, UFOs. But they have a sort of monster in Montana, don't they, that you wanted to cover real quickly? Yeah, really quickly. I thought this was very interesting. I uh, I enjoy fishing when I can. I'm and, not allowed um, to go alone on Sundays, apparently. Uh, apparently not. <laughs> and, in uh, Montana. I love uh, river monsters with Jeremy White and oh my God, I love all him. that stuff. So I'm going to tell uh, a little story or some information about the Flathead Lake monster. Uh, so... Flathead Lake is a large natural lake located in northwest Montana with an area of 126,080 acres and 5,566 cubic meters. It's about 371 feet deep. Ugh. Yeah. It's the 79th largest freshwater lake in the world. It was dammed in 1930 by Kerr Dam. And the level of the water was raised by nearly 10 feet due to the damming. 
Uh, the lake is home to a variety of fish, including pike, trout, perch, and sturgeons. Sturgeons are always in areas where, like, creepy creatures are seen. Right. You know, many of which are caught by uh, the local fishermen. One fish, and obviously y'all at home can't see me right now, but I'm saying fish with uh, hand air quotations. Um, but one fish <laughs> uh, or creature that has reportedly been seen is called the Flathead Lake Monster. Apparently, there have been around 120 sightings of the creature, and many of these sightings describe it as a giant serpent or eel that surfaces very shortly, only to descend back down to the depths of the lake. The first recorded sighting was all the way back in 1889 by Captain James C. Kerr. And I wonder if the dam, the Kerr yeah, Dam, the Kerr is dam. named after him. It didn't really say. Um, but Kerr claims that he and his 100 passengers of the steamboat U.S. Grant saw the creature, and one of the passengers even shot at it, forcing it back underwater. Since then, there have been many, many, many more sightings. Uh, the creature is said to be about 30 to 40 feet long, and it has steel black eyes. Uh, so I guess there's a Native American legend about the Flathead Lake monster that originates from the Kutani tribe. According to the legend, the first native tribe of the area lived on an island in the middle of the lake. Two young girls of the tribe saw the monster, or the creature, or the fish, however you want to, you know, how, whatever you want to call it. The thing. The thing. During the winter time when the lake was frozen over, or rather, they saw the antlers of the monster underneath the ice. It has antlers so according to this legend it does and the girls i don't used, like that yeah it's kind of creepy a big eel serpent thing that has <laughs> antlers yeah i don't like that at all so the girls use sharp rocks to cut through the ice to see the monster more clearly and they also wanted to see maybe they thought it was some type of moose or something. They would cut off the antlers of moose to use, you know, for tools and weapons for the tribe. Okay. So they wanted to cut through the ice to get to the antlers and um, maybe, you know, it was a dead animal that was just floating underneath. Yeah. But upon cutting through the ice, the monster suddenly jumped out and the head of the monster appeared. It is, just, it is described the same way as many other more recent sightings, the serpent-like with the steel black eyes. Mm -hmm. But apparently this had antlers. That's and, gross. <laughs> and with the monster jumping out of the ice, all of a sudden all of the ice started to break around and it's said that half of the tribe drowned that day on the lake due to falling in oh geez that is why there are so few of the kutani people left and legend says the surviving kutani people never strayed from the shore again and only the white settlers who ventured onto the lake have seen it again so naturally there are many skeptics out there that believe this is just an urban legend similar to Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. Many people think that it's just a large giant sturgeon mm -hmm. out on the water. And I get that. Like I've said, uh, you know, I'm more of a seeing and is believing type. But water can be a scary place and I don't doubt that the creature could exist. There are actually uh, a few pictures and videos online if anybody would like to look them up. There's a video on YouTube that I've watched. It's very interesting. I'm not really sure how true it is. There's some <laughs> photos out there that I don't really know how true it is. But 
any of you Montana folk that uh, live near uh, Flathead Lake, if you wouldn't mind sending in some stories, if you or anybody you know thinks that you've seen it, I would love to hear it because I'm very, very fascinated by fish. So one of the things, every like lake monster story, they always talk about sturgeons. So I looked it up. So an Atlantic sturgeon can grow to be approximately 16 feet long and can weigh up to 800 pounds. So like, no, like that makes so much sense. Why, if that's what you're seeing, you could think it was a lake monster because that's right. freaking terrifying. Yeah, and uh, many fishermen out there say that they have seen something at, like th- as large as 20 to 25 to 30 feet on their radar. Like I under- don't even know what that would boat. look like. Yeah, it's pretty crazy well that's montana so a lot of crazy stuff going on there um yeah if you've had any experience with the flathead lake monster let us know or ufos yeah or ufos tell us ufo stories you can send those hopefully not wayne nance yeah yeah no (laughs) yeah hopefully no one's had experience with him um so send those stories to a scary state podcast at gmail.com and if you feel so inclined please go on to itunes um Spotify, anywhere you can rate us and give us a rating and review. We would really appreciate it. And let me know how I did. Yeah, let's know. Like if you'd like to hear me on more episodes, please let us know. I mean, it's kind of in flux a little bit right now with Lauren trying to find a new co-host. So I'm going to be helping out for a little bit. Um, I hope you guys don't mind. Any constructive criticism would be great. Yeah, I hope I'm doing a decent <laughs> job. And you can tell us that too if you want on our social media. All of it is a scary state podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram. Um, we're working on hopefully TikTok that the youths go on. That yeah, the youngins. Figure out. Um, but thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and stay scary. Stay safe. Stay safe.